Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Monday, January 29th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The White House says that Iran-backed militants killed three U.S. service members yesterday. And diplomats from all over the world are working on plans to halt the fighting in Gaza. Plus, car makers in Germany are under a lot of pressure to adapt to electric vehicles. For decades, the German car was the pinnacle of engineering. I mean, that's what the Germans were famous for. And the part of the car was the engine. I'm Joanna Gao, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. White House announced on Sunday that three U.S. service members were killed by a drone attack on a military base near the border of Syria and Jordan. American officials say the attack was carried out by Iran-backed militant groups. The deaths are the first U.S. casualties in the Middle East since the Israel-Hamas war began in Gaza, and President Biden has promised to hold those responsible to account. Fears are growing that the U.S. and its allies could be drawn into a wider regional war. Staying on the conflict in the Middle East, the United Nations' highest court on Friday ordered Israel to limit harm to Palestinians in Gaza. This was an initial ruling in a case brought by South Africa that accuses Israel of committing genocide. Israel has forcefully denied those accusations. The final ruling could take years, but it comes as leaders and diplomats are racing to put forward plans for a ceasefire. I'm joined now by the FT's Jerusalem correspondent, James Schotter. Hi, James. Hi. Okay, so let's start with the ruling from the International Court of Justice. In what ways, if any, does this initial decision change the situation on the ground inside Gaza? I think the answer, to be honest, is not very much. The court issued six emergency orders that Israel has to comply with. These included prevent and punish incitement to genocide, allow the provision of more humanitarian aid in Gaza, and take steps to preserve evidence relating to the case. So from a military point of view, I don't think any of those orders is really going to change the situation on the ground very much. I mean, South Africa in its application had asked for Israel to be ordered to immediately suspend its operation in Gaza, and the court didn't do that. So I think if it does have an impact, it's likely to be quite small. Does the ruling potentially create a sort of breakpoint or a means from which the international community can push for a more lasting ceasefire? I mean, maybe it you know adds a little bit to the mounting international pressure on Israel to agree to a ceasefire. I think there's also a recognition that some of the other orders are at least politically uncomfortable for Israel. The order to punish and prevent incitement to genocide and the order that Israel has to provide a report to the ICJ on how it's complying with the measures the court has imposed. Both of those could affect the political debate a little bit in Israel and internationally, and also put Israel in a position of having to sort of explain itself on an ongoing basis, which I think, you know, is, I mean, it's obviously not a hugely significant impact, but it's less comfortable than it could have been. So let's talk a little bit about where we stand in an effort to work towards a ceasefire. 
We've talked on the show before about a plan that Arab countries are working on. It would include the creation of a Palestinian state and the normalization of diplomatic ties between Israel and its Arab neighbors, most importantly, Saudi Arabia. Is it the only plan or are there others also under consideration? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of initiatives um, being discussed by diplomats at the moment. I mean, as you say, there's the Arab plan. Uh, the EU is pushing for uh, concrete steps towards a two-state solution, which is its, you know, its long-standing position. The UK also has its own uh, plan, which it's been discussing with other partners uh, that would include temporary ceasefire and uh, exchange of hostages and then work towards a permanent ceasefire and some sort of political horizon for a Palestinian state. And then obviously the US has been pushing for a two-state solution with the West Bank and Gaza. So I think you know, there's a lot of plans being discussed at the moment, but the, the roadblock they all face is that Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, who's Israel's prime minister, he's spent his whole career trying to prevent the creation of a Palestinian state. And at the moment, certainly there's not much political appetite in Israel for a two-state solution. I mean, only really on the very left of the political spectrum is there much support for that. So even if Netanyahu were replaced, it doesn't necessarily mean that the Israeli leadership would be much more amenable to a two-state solution. Okay, so all these plans you bring up, they're all hinged in some way on a two-state solution. But like you say, that's kind of a non-starter for Israel at this point. So is there a roadmap for any sort of lasting ceasefire? I think it's very difficult at the moment to see how we get to that, just because the two sides are so entrenched. It's still hard to see how a deal can be reached, you know, at least in the short term, uh, maybe in the long term with enough external pressure, something's possible, but the politics is incredibly fraught. James Schotter is the FT's Jerusalem correspondent. Thanks, James. Thank you. Hungary's economy might take a serious hit if its leader blocks funding for Ukraine at a European Union summit later this week. The 50 billion euro aid package for Ukraine has support from all other EU member states. But Hungary's prime minister, Viktor Orban, has promised to veto the proposal. In response, Brussels has drafted a strategy to shut down all EU funding to Budapest. The goal is to reduce investor confidence in Hungary's markets and hurt their currency. And the plan seems to have support from other EU members. This standoff marks a significant escalation in tensions between the EU and Hungary. Germany's car industry is one of the biggest in Europe, but it's had a few brutal years recently, and now the industry is shrinking. Here to talk about some of the headwinds German car companies are facing is the FT's Frankfurt correspondent, Patricia Nilsson. Hey, Patricia. Hello. Okay, so paint the picture for me. What sort of pressure is Germany's car industry bumping up against these days? Well, one of the issues is that fewer cars are being sold in Europe overall. Look at a company like Volkswagen, which is the you know second largest car maker in, in the world. In 2019, so before the pandemic, they sold about 11 million cars globally. Last year, they sold just over 9 million cars. That's a pretty big drop. And that's an issue to suppliers um, who rely on volume. There's another thing happening at the same time, which is this transition towards electric vehicles. And for suppliers, that means they basically have to 
start making and selling new parts. It's very expensive to invest in this kind of research and development. And there's an additional issue, which is that it appears we just don't need as many people to make an electric car as a car with a combustion engine. And you're seeing that among suppliers now. Quite a lot of them are shedding jobs. So you have a few headwinds there, but a big one seems to be the transition to EVs. What's making it particularly difficult for German companies? For decades, the German car was the pinnacle of engineering. I mean, that's what the Germans were famous for. And the part of the car was the engine. What's happening now is not just the transition to a new type of electric motor. Cars these days are more sold on their software capabilities. And building software is something that Germany has not really caught up with. I mean, it's not their strength. And so you're seeing that there's this race to sort of become better at building software and systems and so on. In the meantime, what's happening is you're seeing this rise of the Chinese car maker. Yeah. So tell me about the competition here. How is China nipping at Germany's heels in the car industry? The world's biggest market for cars is China. And the German car makers, especially Volkswagen, have a long history of being very strong in this market. Uh, What's happening now is that you're seeing all these Chinese startups that are starting to sell a lot of cars, but also they're selling only electric vehicles. That's their specialty. So for example, a lot of these suppliers are in semiconductors or batteries or software. These are also businesses that have higher margins than the sort of traditional suppliers. And the German suppliers are still in many ways playing catch up. Do you think the German car industry can turn this around? And, you know, what happens if they can't? The German car industry is hugely important for Germany in terms of jobs, in terms of tax, and its sort of reliance on exports. Needless to say, it could have nearly catastrophic consequences if the country would lose its car industry. I'm not saying it will. (laughs) You've seen BMW and Mercedes-Benz, for example, they're trying to become more and more premium car makers. So there it's less about volume and it's more about boosting margins on the cars they're actually selling. But for a company like Volkswagen, these are definitely scary times as we are expecting Chinese car makers to come in and start selling cheaper EV cars in in Europe. And we'll have to see how that develops in the next couple of years. And of course, if these companies can develop models that really appeal to people. Patricia Nilsson covers German industry for the FT. Thanks, Patricia. Thank you. Before we go, more employers are putting their foot down over work-from-home policies. In an effort to get people back at their desks, EY has started keeping track of every time someone swipes a key at their UK office door. Other companies are trying different tactics. Bank of America has sent what it calls letters of education to employees who haven't been showing up in person. And Citigroup has told its staff that it'll be keeping an eye on attendance more closely. In the battle between work from home and return to office, it looks like return to office wins this round. You can read more on all of these stories at FD.com for free when you click the links in our show notes. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. 
Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.